This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday the 7th of December. With me today I have Mark Mills. Mark describes himself as Britain's most successful non-exec chairman and mentor. Mark built and sold his own business, starting Carpoint in 2000 and building it to 100 million of revenue and 20 million of EBITDA by 2006. Since 2007, Mark has been applying his unique business processes to other businesses and entrepreneurs and helping them sell their businesses. Mark claims he can sell any business. Mark, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? Very well today. It's such a lovely sunny Friday in London, so all is good. Where shall we start today, Mark? Um, I suppose you could start back at school because I was technically expelled at school and I find lots of entrepreneurs definitely had a, a, an interesting schooling and studying period, so perhaps we'll talk about that first. Uh, absolutely. So. What led you to be expelled, or technically expelled? Technically expelled, um, we threw a teacher in a local lake and uh, the headmaster wrote to my parents and said that we were, uh, well, we thought we were expelled, this is me and my twin, but actually um, they just said we couldn't uh, go back into school, we could just do our exams. So long story short, for years our parents kept us on the hook that we had been expelled and <laughs> revealed all later on that it wasn't quite as bad. But I think that was to keep us on our toes. So you did your exams? Did my exams, got a smattering of results in the A-levels, but interestingly, when I picked my A-level results up, I'd already gone into business, much to the horror of our headmaster at the time. And what business had you gone into at the age of 18? It was pretty glamorous. It was selling a thing called a miracle cloth, which basically Mm -hmm. brought stains off anything, and uh, bought a job lot and went door to door trying to sell them. Excellent. How many? How, how long did that last and how many did you sell? And I did sell thousands of them but ended up sort of disposing of them in bulk because it was a terrible model really in terms of just the sheer effort for the reward. But what it did teach me was that actually knocking on doors, be that, you know, approaching people on LinkedIn these days or emailing yeah. or, or whatever, it is effective. And what it taught me, I think, which has stayed with me hugely and I'm quite well known for a number of places is it's a numbers game. So I figured out that when I did get a product that sold really well, which was the next one, which was pay phones, literally if I called on 100 people a day, I would sell one. Yes, exactly. But you need to make those calls. Exactly. So people used to say to me, that's terrible because 99 people say no. And I'd say, no, no, it's great because I know that I only have to call on 100 to sell one. Uh, exactly right. I think we had someone on the podcast who used the same analogy about selling mops door to door. And... Uh, he quite enjoyed getting the first five as no's because he knew he needed another 25 to go and he'd make a sale. Well, a sale I used to actually ask some customers to say no. So they'd be <laughs> pitching away and they'd say, 
Um, I'm not really interested. Well, just say no then. They say, no, we're a bit quick off the mark. So, well, if you don't want it, I'm better with a no. Yeah. I detest maybes. Yes. Love yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly right. I mean, we're wasting both of our times. So I don't really need to know the, the explanation of why it's a no. No, it's a no. A no is a no. <laughs> so, so, by the end of the week, I've had 495 no's and five yeses. Yes. And to me, that was a, a great set of numbers. So, it's very, I found a lot of businesses very formulaic in that yes. sense. Yeah. So from microfiber cloths to pay phones, all, all working for yourself, I assume? Yes, yes, set up on my own and with help of brothers various along the way. We've got two brothers yeah. who've been in and out of business with me. The, uh, the pay phone's a great model because it was a time when things were changing in the telecoms industry, but our business model was terrible. So that really led me to interrogate business models and almost become obsessive about them, if I'm honest because we never had any recurring income. We yes. only got the payment from selling the phone. And I still say to this day, if I had 23, I'd have probably been retired in Barbados if I'd have had a penny from every phone call. Exactly. But it exactly. wasn't there at the time. So it made me really think about rules for business. So by the time we packed that one in and started the third business, I'd really become obsessive about 10 rules for business. And the top three are the best ones, but the, um, number one is the best one. And that's what I said to whoever I ever spoke to. I'll never go into business unless it's got certain attributes. And yeah. I'll never invest in a business without certain attributes. And the businesses I now help invariably, I help them to generate and enhance those attributes. So let's go straight into <laughs> what, what, what are those attributes, or the top three? What are the attributes? The first one is invariably recurring income. Yeah. Um, number two is location independence, so I'm not keen, and and by the way, anyone can ride a coach and horses through my own rules, but yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. works for me. Uh, location independence, so you're not reliant upon a single location or a number of locations necessarily, and that's changed a lot with the internet. Anyway. So there's the ability to scale the business, I guess. Exactly, yeah. and number three is, I mean, people normally put number one, but it's management, because if without it, you're not going to get anywhere anyway. And then there's a whole trail of them that you can go through, but if you get those three, uh, right, and preferably the recurring income one at the beginning, then that really sets the scene for a successful business. So I'm slightly obsessed with how you then run it in terms of um, on a, 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 an upward trajectory, which you can generate if you've got recurring income, I think. Is that by investing back in the business if you have your recurring income? Yeah, you've got visibility, so you can basically make longer term better decisions if you know that you've got income coming in regardless, providing you provide your service, of course. So I think what it does is it just gives you that. Uh, in abil uh, that ability to plan um, properly. So you're not hand from mouth waiting to know if you'll make payroll, but you can actually have a, a proper five, three, five year strategy. Exactly. That should give you great insights into the business. So de-stresses everything because yeah. you, everything, every piece of effort you make is going to give you a long-term income. Yeah. So you can plan properly, you can start to invest, you can start to work things out as opposed to just sell, 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 and actually if everything drops off a cliff, then you, you know where yeah. you still be cost based. Yeah. So if you get into another word that I'm really keen on, granularity in terms of your business plan, if you've got that recurring income piece and you've got a great plan and you understand your numbers intimately, then what I say to most businesses, what you're really doing is just cranking the handle to yes. make it bigger and better. Yeah. And actually most business owners and founders are really good at that bit. They're not necessarily good at the sort of the business model and planning and working all out. They've just been doing the thing they're really good at. So my model is to go in and say, look, you're going to do more of what you're really good at, but behind the scenes, we're going to be pretty obsessive about the model, the granularity, the recurring income aspects. And 
Was that the basis of, of card point? Did that ever recurring income element? Absolutely. So I had another business in between times, well, a couple which were in, uh, in uh, advertising, which we did get recurring income on. So that was the sort of seed. So by the time we got to 1999, um, we'd sold a business which was in post boxes where we put advertising on them, recurring income because we had yeah. income coming yeah. monthly, uh, quarterly, yearly. And did, did you have to give some some revenue to the to the post office or it, it was a it was a good model what happened was it, little known piece of legislation you can install your own post box and you basically pay the royal mail to collect from it and they're legally obliged to so in effect we paid them a fee but that was for the collection yeah. we didn't have to pay the royalty yeah. similarly we put them at petrol stations who were delighted to have an additional yeah. service because yeah. back then it's 20 years ago uh, you know, everybody still carried uh, letters around in the yes. car. Yeah, exactly. They couldn't park to post one. So, and it drove retail sales. And we advertised coffee and Kit Kats on them. So it drove Nescafe and Kit Kat sales. So great model. But and we ultimately sold it to Royal Mail uh, after we oh, sold it to an outdoor advertising yeah. company. So, but that had recurring income. So what we did in 1999, my brother and I, I said to him, all good ideas come from the States. So we got the two cheapest flights we could to the US walked around and stumbled across a cash machine in a corner shop, um, which cost me $3 to get 50 out. Yes, and yes. Said, they're still going, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. So that's a great model, yeah. recurring income, it's location dependent, etc., etc. Unfortunately, we also sat, sat in a Starbucks every morning and discussed the fact that that'd never take off in the UK <laughs> because we're a nation of tea drinkers. <laughs> so my brother's Can't never win them all. Can't win them all. Can't win them all. <laughs> At least we've got the cash machines. <laughs> So was that was that the model then? Cash machines in in locations. That's right. So we started with convenience stores, petrol stations on the back of us having dealt with many uh, of twelve hundred in our post box business. So we leveraged our existing customers, and uh, we built that up. Better, to, yeah. yeah, built that up to six and a half thousand cash machines in the UK, Germany, and the Netherlands. We did some acquisitions along the way. We listed it, which was interesting. We borrowed heavily to grow the business, etc. But what it had was six and a half thousand things that were working 24 seven where you put that upfront cost in and then it was the ultimate recurring income. And in terms of cash, apart from food, it's sort of the ultimate consumable yeah. because you always need more of it yeah. and regularly. So what I really liked about it, if I get a bit obsessive about business models for a minute for your listeners, of is, um, there was the cash machine element. So most people used to say to me, well, it must be pretty simple, you put a cash machine in, you plug it in, you put cash in. Well, behind the scenes, there's a lot more going on than that because we were keyed into the link network, into all the banks, yeah. you had to authorise your card. Yeah. There was a lot of logistics and getting the money there, so it was always full. Did, did the business do that? So the business would deliver the cash to the... We outsourced that aspect, mainly for security course, reasons. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but we, you were in charge of... Absolutely, we orchestrated a, everything. It was a complete managed solution for the shopkeeper. Exactly. So our best model was where we would literally place it in a store we do everything. The retail get an uplifting sales because yeah. people's propensity to spend yeah. up goes up when they've got cash in their pocket. Yeah. And then we would keep all the income. We did share some income with many retailers, but our best version was where yeah. we kept it all. Um, and so there was the whole piece there, and there was sort of the banking piece as well, because we had to deal with the Bank of England. So there was the sort of business model. Then it was a different model in Germany and the Netherlands. So we had three business models on the go. We bought another complementary business in mobile phone prepayment terminals because that helps us with influx of cash because people used to go into corner shops and top the phone up with a £10 note because yeah. that's pretty handy for a business that dispenses yeah. cash. Yeah. Dispense cash. And at the same time we were listed, and at the, which is another whole yeah. business to operate in a sense, 
and um, we had debt and we had shareholders. So I said, I've always said it was a really good sort of thesis or a, you know really good test case for running a business. Yes. It, there was sort of up, down, and sideways different things going on, which was just really interesting. So um, and within that, what I figured was when you've got some scale, when you've got recurring income, and you're planning your granular, you can really drive a successful business. So I knew on day one if I drove all the right attributes and did it in the right way. And delighted our customers and our yeah. motivated yeah. staff, which I'll come on to if I may, then you will have a successful business. Make it sound so easy. It's not it's not easy. What well, it is not it's not difficult or complicated, but it's a bias, it's not even hard work, it's just a lot of work. Yes. I say that to people. It's not it, there is a playbook really to follow. And in terms of the staff piece, which I just mentioned, I figured out along the way if somebody cleverer than me told me that people work in the order of fun achievement, recognition, then money. So what I consciously did was make it fun, yeah. got them on achievement. In the UK, we're pretty rubbish at recognition, so we did a lot of recognition and rewarding people for when they'd achieved things, and we're very grateful. And lastly, we paid them. But actually, people think money's the motive. Exactly. It, it truly isn't, because people go and work somewhere else for less yeah. if it's no fun working with you. So we used to have a summer party, a Christmas party. We'd celebrate everything. And what we found is that that really binded people to us and that made for a great work environment and therefore people work really hard you know and smart but enjoy it and that drove us because again granularity we didn't have to pay as much in payroll as other people did because yes. we had a really committed workforce. I mean it's interesting isn't it you spend so much of your day with your colleagues you need to have some form of fun. Absolutely. <laughs> and the same, the same with the founder of Patagonia in fact he's written a great book uh, let your people go surfing and the whole idea that if there were waves in Ventura where and they wanted to go surfing they could do you said nothing but ultimately you found them back in the office at eight o'clock at night doing the work that, that they were meant to do during the day and yeah. they, they were very happy to exactly. come and do that. My, my similarity, similar story I suppose is that I once went into the office, I used to be based in order to spend lots of time in London and um, I'd go into the office sometimes at four in the morning to pick some things up and I went in one night and I was actually cursing because all the wives running the office. Yes, someone left them on, yeah. And actually the office was full of people working who decided to do an all-nighter without even being asked. And I remember thinking, gosh, they're, they're pretty motivated and they were all surprised to see me and I, I was surprised to see them. And I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm in it quite a lot for them. I didn't expect some, some of the guys and girls who, you know, we didn't pay huge amounts to, to actually work through the night because they loved it so much. So obviously, proud obviously fun, achievement, recognition and money work, worked for you then? It did, yeah. And there's a bit of another one which is time with a boss. So it's an interesting one for your listeners that um, if you work for Virgin and you've never made, met Richard Branson, yeah. for example, you might look a little bit silly that you are committed to the cause you've never met him. So he makes a big point, and I read about years ago, trying to meet everybody at some yes. point, big yeah. parts, etc. So even if it's a handshake but you've met him, a picture yeah. with him. So one thing people do enjoy, I found, is to have some time with the boss. So I try to do that with everyone and meet everyone and get to know everybody one way or another. So at least if they were asked, they could say, well, yeah, I'm not just working for a sort yeah. of face organisation. The chap who started it, yeah. you know, I've met him and he seems okay and he quite like that. Uh, and I think people like to think that those in management are in with it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you roll up their sleeves and you're in it together. Yeah. Well, as a, even as a CEO of a listed business with sort of 300 people turning over 100 million, because invariably me shoveling up some stuff off the car park in the morning yes. if I was first in. Yeah. And I used to say to myself, it's the glamour of being a CEO, but you know, you can't ask somebody to do something you wouldn't do yourself. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a very fair comment, Mark. Um, and then 2006, 
I assume, a, a bid for card points that happened? Yeah, it was really interesting. We had a bid from private equity, which actually wasn't consummated, but the share price went up 40%, and I basically decided to come away, so we've got some different directing in one chair and et cetera. They carried it on. You might say it didn't quite fare as well as some would have liked. Um, did a bit of a disastrous merger, ended up in all sorts of court shenanigans, nothing to do with me, of course. And then... Um, it, had, it did a bit more, went back, went into private But Fortune's now ended up being owned completely, it got bought by some Americans and now owned completely by NCR, who were the people who originally we bought the machines from, the big manufacturer. How funny. I know, so I, I do find it queer that they've actually bought back the machines we bought from yeah. them effectively. But, and it shows also, which I talk a lot to people in my obsession about business models, that if you'd have said to me when I started it, you know, NCR one day will own these machines and be dispensed their cash themselves, you'd have said, no, no, they're a manufacturer. But it just shows how things wax and wane, and that that manufacturer's now decided to be a service provider, and within that to actually own and operate literally hundreds of thousands of machines. I mean, vertical in integration is key. Again, margin, exactly. Keeping that margin in-house and running their own machines makes a lot of sense. Maybe you showed them the way. Well, you never know. I think, interestingly and conversely, we bought a lot of machines from SecureCore, now renamed G4S, because they did the same. They decided, well, we've got the guys going out filling yeah. them with cash. Yeah. We could do this. And then decided, actually, we don't want to do this. So they sold us 1,232 machines. But in return, we gave them a contract to service the remainder of yes. our machines. Yes. So they became more of a pure play, as did we, did yeah. more of what we were doing. So I used to say to people, it just does go in cycles, yeah. doesn't it? Right. So now, since 2007, how have, been, how have you been spending your time? So, thank you for asking. It's been very interesting. I've really enjoyed it because basically a few business owners, not many, said to me, how did you do that? So what, what do you mean? Well, how did you think of an idea, then develop it, then exit? So what I said, which is true, which is I basically wrote three modules. So module number one, new business development, so everyone can have a bit of that. So I had a new idea or refining your existing idea. Number two, grow your business bigger, more profitably, but in a controlled way, so not over-trading. Number three is to exit. So three modules. So most people don't really need number one, but they need a sort of taste of it. Number two, they really want, because a lot of business owners I meet have sort of gone as far as they can, but so they need a sort of leg up to the next yeah. bit. And the third part, exit, is a bit that probably they've never done before or may have come across. And that's very, what, very emotive, I think, in it. So even to start thinking about selling your business started oh yeah I've got some great stories about that you've touched on a really good point so a, a lady whose business I sold uh, the long story short is she and her husband were both earning similar money her running a business him working for somebody yeah. they decided they couldn't manage with the three sons unless one yeah. acted in so the husband <coughs> decided he would look after the boys and she would carry on with the business but they were both really emotionally invested in the business and the day after we sold it I rang him I rang her at home and he answered and I said to him, how do you feel? She got a lot of money for the business. And he said, to be honest, Mark, it feels like we've sold one of the children. And I said, well, to be honest, I wouldn't have got you as much for yeah. one of the kids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then he brought me through to his wife, who said she'd spent all night crying, eating yeah. baked beans on toast on her lap in bed. And I said to her, have you got internet banking? She said, yeah. I said, check your bank balance. And she said, actually, I feel a lot better now. I said, I don't know why you've been so bothered. It must, be really, it must be really strange. I've never been in a position, but it must be really strange because you've done, you've, you've created Inverticom as your life's work. And then that comes down to a number. And then that number is in your bank account. And uh, businesses take a long time to sell. So during the process, you must have some recognition or realisation that the money is likely to fall in your bank account. And I always wonder, on that day, I'm lottery winners actually, on that day, 
you you go and you type in your, your details on the internet, you see the number, and then that's it done, right? That's <laughs> that your dopamine hit, and then it's sort of well, what next? Absolutely, you can be more correct. It's completely anticlimactic. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time with people explaining what it'll look like afterwards. Yes, the anticlimactic nature of it, and then what happens, all the bizarre things that happen when you sell a business, because as soon as everybody finds out, in inverted commas, the begging letters start. Yeah. And there's, so there's some not as great aspects, but similarly, you can do a lot of good. So I spend a lot of time with owners saying, this is what it's gonna look like. Sometimes they don't really believe me, but then they do eventually. Yeah. And also, um, just explaining that what you should have is a plan afterwards, because what you don't want is that huge amount of activity. And a cliff. And then a cliff edge, exactly. Yeah. So. I do spend a lot of time with saying, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And actually having a plan, and also things like marking the occasion, which invariably people do with a car or house. Yes, but, yeah. but you should, um, because that makes it less anticlimactic every time you jump in your new car. And I guess mentally, that is the closure, isn't it? So you've had your new car, or you've bought your holiday home, or your ski chalet, or whatever it might be. So you have that memory of that's the event that happened post selling your business. Exactly. But I think it's because these, I guess, are very driven and entrepreneurial people. To wake up the next morning and have inverted commas nothing to do must be you know, very difficult for them. Very difficult. And people's identities are hugely yes. attached to the company. So, you know, you talk about John Smith from XYZ Company. Yeah. That's how everybody describes you. So you've really got to figure out how to sort of disaggregate yourself from that and be a new person in that sense. So, yeah, it, it's a roller coaster for people. And actually, even years hence, some people will say to me, never really felt like it happened. There's still a bit of imposter syndrome. Yes. So yes. I, I spend a lot of time with people explaining that actually, invariably, if you sell a business for a decent sum of money, you are in the top 1% of yeah. achievement in terms of commercial yeah. things. And that therefore, it cannot be imposter syndrome. You've built something really great, special, that somebody else wants to pay a lot of money for. Yeah. And but but you've got to deal with all these emotions of you know is it really worth that? So in that example, that lady literally started her business in a garden shed, so she couldn't get her head round to begin with just how much somebody would actually pay for it because she couldn't get her herself away from having yes. been in a garden shed. Whereas actually she had five hundred salespeople in a fantastic wow. business. Wow. So and I used to say to her, it's night and day. You know, forget about that. Yes. Bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting and and. But, it, but it's worth going through because in this country we get heavily taxed on income, we yep. get much less taxed on capital gain. Yep. And the other thing I do encourage owners to do, without necessarily going back exactly into the same industry, but it's to think of another business you would have done had you not done the one that you sold. Because yes. invariably, when you get to something, say, what I always really wanted to do was, and they, and they said, well, actually, this could be your opportunity to so start to plan that. Sometimes they don't, but at least if they've got to plan, and a focus it gives them something to aim for. Yes, because not uh, not everyone can sit on the beach. No, no, no. Well, I tried it for three weeks when I was thirty six. My wife said, "You're driving me mad. Yeah. Think of something to do." So I set up an office with my old secretary still with me, and uh, she said to me, "What we're we going to do?" I said, "Don't know, but we're going to be in business." Yes, well, <laughs> exactly right with your whiteboard working out what That's you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, I think people need somewhere to go in the morning. Absolutely, I think it, I think it is, especially if you have been or if you are very driven. And achieved great things. You, I think, you want to continue well, to do that. And that, absolutely, and particularly the ones that I've dealt with where I've sold the businesses, because we've been so focused and driven, and it's been so granular that that cliff edge you talked about is an even steeper yes. cliff edge. Because yeah. if they just were sort of ambling along in the business, doing well, and then sold it, fine enough. But if you've been through a sort of an intense process, yeah. then it can, it's even worse. But I, I identified that after the first couple and thought, right, I need to really think about this because. 
they're going to need a plan afterwards. I can't just sort of wave them goodbye and say good luck. So there's a bit of aftercare as well. And actually, most of the people whom I've sold business are now my best friends. I was going to say, they must become friends. I mean, Absolutely. We've been through thick and thin. How do you, when do you start working with businesses then? To, to Typically about 18 months before. So my typical model, again, just to the benefit of listeners who probably chuckle is, I tend to get involved when someone's had an aborted transaction. Yes, that could either be on the solicitor's steps and it all gets pulled, or another deal's fallen over, which is made theirs, and they sort of say, I'm fed up of all these sort of advisor types. I need to meet yes. that's been there and done it and got the yeah. t-shirt. So that's when I tend to, to get involved. In fact, uh, I was just gonna mention a quick point. One, to talk about going above and beyond for clients, which is what they invariably want. I did actually save one client's life along the way. He started to choke in front of me. <laughs> oh dear. Saved his life. I said, no extra fee. <laughs> <laughs> Just there will be a fee at the end of all this, obviously. <laughs> and she, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I suppose it's always a life to pay his fee. So that's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I was thinking his fee was flashing before. Yes. Yeah. No, no, his life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so eight, eight, 18 months typically. It can be shorter and snappier, but invariably, one thing I do find is if you get some time with the company. So I've had some that run on for years, uh, you know, not ridiculously so, but there's a sort of care and maintenance and then getting a more intense process. But actually you can drive more value. So sometimes I'll say to people, I know you're out in six months, but actually you're gonna do a lot better in 18 months. So then your valuation's gonna hopefully exactly. be a lot higher. So, and I think, what, and it's true of all business, isn't it? If you perform and people can see the output, then they don't, my class were really relaxed about it taking longer because everything's going in the right direction and there's a there's a plan and there's a focus and there's an end point. Whereas I think if it was just sort of ambling or meandering, mm. that'd be the, you know, that would be difficult for people to comprehend. I think that's where a lot of other advisors tend to fall down because just nothing seems to happen. Yes. Do you do you actively source the, the acquirer or do you leave that to the management teams who understand the marketplace? No, 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 I'm far too obsessive for that. So I, on day one, start a file for everybody I act for and literally start to note down potential acquirers from everything, every aspect of the press and Google I can get hold yeah. of. And then I reference them, uh, check their strategies, go and see them on a completely anonymous basis because not, most people act for nobody knows that them. So I can yes. tip up and see yeah. somebody in, healthcare software and say, you know, what are you thinking of doing and figure out if they've got the right strategy if they're acquiring at the moment, if they've got the available funds, do we fit, etc. So by the time it comes to actual short lists or long lists of people to they're see fully qualified. fully qualified, they're in the right spot. And again, my clients love that because there's, there's no wasted time. So typically if we go and see eight to twelve people, we'll get six to eight offers oh, interesting. and yeah. and literally yeah, people would say oh it's a lot easier than I thought so well, I've done 18 months work on this it's well, exactly <laughs> exactly right and it's like everything even in our business the the hard yards are done before you make the first call exactly. yeah yeah you used to do a great job with people I mean you're prolific in floating people yes. which is a really tough thing to do having been through a few times yes exactly so yeah it's uh, every credit that you do that behind the scenes and, and even testament to our relationship you know we've known each other a long time juice and I've been friends yeah. a long time Exactly right, exactly right. So, how many are you working with at the moment? How many companies? Typically, deal with about three or four because you've kind of got one leaving the building yes. and you've got one coming yeah. in. So, it's always a bit yeah. like that. So, it sometimes gets a little bit more, or sometimes a bit less, depending on the size. But that would be typical. So, I don't need a cast of thousands. And I've become really picky, and that's not in an arrogant way at all. But I do really qualify owners now and say, you know, you've got to be committed to this because I'm going to throw my heart and soul into it. So it's annoying if somebody isn't committed, but 
but nowadays I tend to try and avoid those people who just sort of want to have a look and see. And if you're going to do it, let's do it because once you jump on, uh, uh, you know, once you embark upon the process, really you're going to see it through. So that's how to approach it. I mean, we're the same with, with IPOs and floats because obviously you need a management team and you have to have focus to want it as a desire and an aspiration for the best of the business. Sure. Because otherwise, everyone wastes each other's time. Yeah, exactly right. I think as business people, we're built to sort of complete the finishes. So um, you tend to be able to spot people, don't you? And again, typically, they've been through a process in my, uh, you know, when I'm called upon. So I know there's been a sort of motivation there, but they've not managed to get to the executions. Yeah. And maybe that's where you then add that value as well. Yeah, definitely. I always say to people, the two things I bring really are a higher price, but probably most importantly, it's the certainty. Hey, if we're going to do it, we will get it away. People say, well, how do you know? I say, well, if we do all the right things in the right order at the right time, it might take a bit longer, it might not take as long, but you will sell it in the end. Like, how can you say it? I say, well, you can sell anything if you do it right and do it for longer. So that's why I say to people, I can sell any business. So I was about to say that claims you can sell any business thing. And I guess it is, you are very, very right in the way that it is a process and a, and a formula. And just some of the building blocks at the beginning of that are well set. And the attributes of the business are attractive, exactly. irrelevant of sector. I mean, I guess the one variable would depend on price and the economic cycle or whatever. Sure. But ultimately, yeah. yeah, there's a there's a price for everything and the right price for, for management. That's so. right. If you strip it away, I, uh, I teach this a lot with people. There are four elements to every business. I've yet to find a thing. But there's customers, suppliers, um, there's your staff, and there's other stakeholders, which is a bit of a catch-all, to be fair. Yes, but your exactly. bank, your landlord, whatever. So it doesn't matter what you do. And what I do is I draw that out in a sort of four squares yes. and say, they have to be in equilibrium. So if it becomes like a rhombus rather than a square, then we yeah. have to concentrate more on that bit and pull it back into line. Yeah. And it's never completely square. But when you look back at your business when it was the most profitable and you were the happiest running it, it was a square because your staff were all happy yeah. and it was all working. Your customers happy, it was all working. Your supply chain was working and, and you were the stakeholders. Yeah. And when it's terrible and you're not happy, the thing's all over the place, but you can't decide on which to concentrate first. So I say to people, if you get that square going, we'll sell your business. If you and I can't get that square into a square, yeah. then we're gonna struggle. But the whole point is we're getting to square because of that granularity, the planning, looking at the business model, etc. So yeah, in the end you can sell it. And of course it's a function of price, but if you've got the upward trajectory that you should get from concentrating on those elements and the granularity and the the business model, then you can sell it. Again, you make it sound so very easy. <laughs> don't make it sound too easy, because it won't sell exactly. it. Well, they won't, I doubt they will. And I think, I think also the fact that you have this experience yourself, rather than a, uh, I've got to laugh now, but a, a Hermes tie-wearing investment banker who just swans into the room and starts to cream to everyone how things should be done, actually because you've done it, it must add so much more gravitas. And because you're a business owner and an entrepreneur, that also you can speak the same language as the world. I might think so. I mean, I, I think I've been really lucky because I've stumbled and fumbled into some situations that have been hugely to my advantage. So, you know, first couple of businesses didn't do that well. Then we got going a bit, then one did really well, by which time I'd done, uh, I'd dealt with some private tea, I'd dealt in the listed markets, or dealt in the debt markets, I bought some stuff, I sold some stuff. So when I, I wrote a book called Making Your Mark and um, the lady who helped me put that together said, uh, a good strap like for you Mark would be, been there, done that, done it, got the t-shirt, yep. and the scars underneath. Yes. And so that, yep. that's the point, I think. 
I've actually, you know, one way and another, and it more than than planning, gone through all sort of versions of events. So when somebody says, "Oh, what about this version?" So well, yeah, I did that on a company a few years yes. ago. Or did that yeah. version, and I think that's really useful. So yeah, I think it's just it's probably a bit of a northern thing as well that I'm sort of a bit rough and tumble sometimes with things to find things out. So don't take the first answer, etc. So, you know, I think that you learn as you go along. What's useful to your point is you can help apply that for other people. Yes. So you can say, look, we've been through loads of this before. You know, it's not always perfect, but this is what it's going to look like. And I think that that bit was the reason I sort of got into selling people's businesses because I realized no one really helped me on mm -hmm. mine. I was yeah. just sort of on my yeah. own with it. And I thought, oh, you know what, business owners could really do with somebody in their corner who's just on their side. Yeah. And that would be really useful. And again, it goes back to a lot more than price. Almost your fun achievement, recognition, and money, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it all comes back to that, yeah. doesn't it? Really. So people will actually sell a business for less if they think it's going to a better home yes. for their staff. Yeah, yes. I've never really come across a business owner who hasn't said that. I think that's exactly right. And we see that a lot on this side. Yes. But the the because actually, I was talking to someone the other day about this. Is they have a very they perceive a very strong local reputation. And the last thing they want to see when you employ a lot of people locally is bump into people in the street and I think it's been dreadful since you sold it. They've, <laughs> they've sacked half the workforce. <laughs> exactly right. So you need to think that you are leaving a, a positive legacy, I guess. Yes. Well, I got a little bit into trouble after I came out of Carpoint because um, I said to the guy who took over, don't, don't do three things, one of which was don't close the black office because A, it made all the money, that's where all the great staff were. And exactly to your point, I didn't want to bump into <laughs> 200 people who were not happy with me. But they did close a Blackpool office and the local paper phoned me and said, what do you think? And I said, there are a bunch of old duffers who don't know what they do. Not realising that every quote's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was in the paper with that, which they wrote to me and said it wasn't very generous as well. That's how I felt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but exactly. to your point, yeah, I didn't want people to think, gosh, you did all that work and then we were left running out of track. We did get a lot of people, a lot of people got relocated or other jobs of... Not too bad on our, on our part. And I think that's a, the, the legacy angle is somewhat forgotten by many, many professional advisors, I would imagine. Just want to get the deal done and, and their fee and move on to the next one. Yeah, with business owners, it's a lot of that. I mean, you know, you have a debate probably early on about things like the company name, you know, how would you feel? And most people say, well, no, I really want the name to stay. To stay. Yeah. And you say, well, if it couldn't, how would you feel? And okay, I think these days there's a, there's a lot more sort of in inverted commas business maturity about things like yeah. that. You're going to sell it, you're going to be paid a lot of money. The, the new owner wants to build something else, you have got no say over it. But if, if you know, if push came to shove, they'd always want the legacy to be there. Uh, but I, you know, I say to people anyway, you know what you've achieved. When you put your head on the pillow at night, you know what you've done, how well yes. you treated people. So. Exactly, exactly right. And I think if you're comfortable with how you treat other people, then that's, that's absolutely perfect. Now, Mark, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. I'm going to take one at a time, if that's okay. Your greatest inspirational mentor? So I've got to split this into two parts, yeah, if I may. Absolutely. <laughs> so never, you know, never be that straightforward. So originally, my absolute inspiration was Sir John Harvey Jones. Mm -hmm. I've got a slightly funny story about that as well, if you'd like me of to course, hear. Of course. So um, I was sitting in the Institute of Directors many years ago, and I thought that I could see Sir John Harvey Jones sitting near me. And I said to the chap I was with, I said, that is Sir John Harvey Jones. He is my absolute hero. I absolutely love that guy. I've read everything by him. And um, the guy with me kept looking at me a bit queer, and I thought, oh, 
don't know why he's not, you know, as excited as, as I am. Anyway, I went up to him uh, after the meeting. I said, I'm really sorry to disturb you, mm. Sir John, but I just want to say, you know, you're the greatest business era and he's in a Scottish accent. So thank you, laddie, but I'm not Sir John. Uh, but he was actually his double. <laughs> <laughs> he did lots of uh, events with him. Oh, really? Yeah, when both of them A really nice chap who's now a circle, Sir Eric Peacock. And he introduced me to a chap who uh, ultimately, in the end, through him and the people he knows, I've actually sold a few companies. Oh, so I've actually walked into some of the case of mistaken identity uh, has been good for business. So Sir John Harvey Jones, definitely. My best personal mentor was a chap called Professor John Westwood, who was one of my non-execs in Carpoint, who was just, an, and still is, just an absolutely wise old owl yeah. in terms of business and just had a great way of looking at things. He just said to me, come on, Lindsay, let's look at it like this. And he used to think, gosh, he was really clever. Still is. He lives in South Africa now. Lovely guy and a great mentor. Amazing. And then a book which has inspired you. So that would be uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Which probably you've had before. Well, actually, interesting. I, I did a podcast uh, a couple of days ago, and that came out. Because we've, only, we've only had it twice. Right. We've got the second one. But, uh, I mean, it is, a, it is a great book that many people have ascribed their success to. It is. And uh, my brother and I both read it at the same time, and we both laughed. There's so many things in it, and I know it's a bit American. It's not perfect in some senses. But I think what it does is it just gets you to think about business models. I remember reading it, and I still read it. I've got a copy by my bed at, at the moment, and just think it was just inspirational. Ironically, the guy didn't actually fare that well over the yeah. years, but, but the, what he wrote was very clever, and it just was a really clever way of looking at things, particularly in terms of financial services and in property. And, and that whole idea of passive, passive income passive or recurring exactly. revenue. Uh, I was away last weekend, and um, there was an Australian couple there you take four months each year to, to come to Europe to do the Christmas markets, as I guess is their want. Yeah. And uh, the, the gentleman was very involved in, in property and uh, an array of self-storage businesses. And he said, I, I earn the same amount of money going to the Berlin Christmas market as I do going to the office. Exactly. Mine is bungalows. So taking Rich Dad Poor Dad, I thought, what's the best model in terms of physical houses? And we all end up in a bungalow, yeah. Because you start off in a flat, yeah. you go to a house, that you downsize. Everyone ends up in a bungalow. In part because in the UK there's a bit of overweight and bad health. People yeah. don't want stairs. So I thought, well, I'll invest in bungalows. When I first showed my business plan to one of my friends who's a bank manager, he burst out laughing. So well, I don't know why it's so funny. I think it's a great idea. My occupancies off the scale yes. compared to flats yeah. and houses because everyone wants bungalows. They build a net minus number of bungalows a year. So if you're thinking about a business model for buy to let. Bungalows is it? So how many bungalows do you currently own? Fourteen. Excellent. I built twelve as well, but I sold them to a housing association because we were desperate for the yeah. tenants that didn't yeah. have enough bungalows. So that was funny. It's a great word, actually, isn't it, bungalow? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career? I think um, have a plan. So I, I write a personal business plan every couple of years and I refresh it. And people say, how do you write a personal business plan? I say, well, figure out where you want to be, what you want to do, what you're good at, what you're bad at. Work on yourself, particularly on the bits you're not good at. So yeah. don't just work on the bits you're good at yeah. and have a personal plan to set yourself milestones, targets, etc. So whether you're employed, your own business, whatever, have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you don't know where to go. It's a bit like selling a business, have a plan. Exactly. So I say, why not have a personal plan? And it, you know, it can be as detailed or or not, but actually the the mere fact of writing it down in sections, thinking about your hopes and aspirations and how you're going to get there, 
what you're not going to do, what you're going to work on on yourself, what you think the obstacles will be, etc. Do a SWOT analysis. Yes. Um, I think is really useful. And ever since I've done that, I've managed to achieve a great deal more than before then when it was just sort of, you know, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Yeah. It's just too vague and difficult to achieve. So I say to people, write a plan. If I could go back, I'd have one at 18 rather than starting at five yeah. than in the 30s. And then, Mark, how can listeners get in touch with you? Um, hopefully, really simply. So you can find me at www.mark.co.uk, M-A-R-K, because I've bought that domain name, so yeah. into Martin. You can email me at mark at mark.co.uk. I do get a lot of spam, but I try and look, and I'm, I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn, so I really like reading other people's content on LinkedIn. So I love connections and to follow people, and I try and post nearly every day something that I think is just a... A, a, a sort of useful thing for people to read hopefully. Mark, this has been truly insightful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.